welcome back for a brand new episode of The Witching Hour. We are here on the Interviews YouTube channel because Haley and I have a very special guest this time around. It's Michael Chaves, the director of The Conjuring 3, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. Hello, it's so good to see you and congratulations. Oh, thank you guys. I am so excited to be here. We're really excited to talk to you about your movie, but also make sure our viewers know a little more about you than they might at this point. So I kind of wanted to start by going back to the very, very beginning. What is the, the moment that you realized you have to be a filmmaker? You know, I think just as a kid, you know, I, um, you know, I, I love making movies with my friends. You know, I would make comics and, um, you know, it's so funny. I, I was telling someone about this that, you know, I, you know, someone was asking me what was my first horror movie that I saw. And I think it might've been one of the Nightmare on Elm Streets. I think it was like Nightmare on Elm Street three or four and I saw it on VHS. And, you know, that was fascinating. And honestly, I, I connected with Freddie so much more than I think a lot of the, you know, the other, um, you know, 80s, horror uh, monsters and I just thought that you know the idea was fascinating and you know those movies were so just bizarre and bold and his personality especially as the series went on kind of you know really you know got really wild and you know it kind of also began this like love of just like new line movies and new line horror movies and I was telling someone how there you know as a kid when I was drawing comics I would put the new line logo at the top of the uh, the comics. And um, I just, you know, and so honestly, I'm still like, to this day, just thrilled. I can't believe I, I have a movie, a new line movie that, uh, you know, I, I get to, uh, with that logo in front of it. So, I mean, I think it's, yeah, it started there and just, you know, I, I think a love of, you know, monster makeup and, you know, just, you know, fake blood and, um, then I got into, you know, visual effects as a kid and I was, you know, doing a lot of like visual effects and, um, you know, that kind of evolved. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think that, you know, the stuff I really love is a hybrid of the two where, you know, there's those practical effects. Um, you know, we have a lot of uh, practical effects in the movie, but, you know, there's, you know, artful use of CG. And I think it's, you know, the hybrid, you know, it's a, I, I don't think, you know, nowadays you can totally abandon um, digital filmmaking or, you know, CG elements, even though I think that they were always, I think, trying to get away from it in, you know, different respects. But, um, but yeah, I think that, yeah, that's probably a long-winded answer for, uh, you know, the beginning. I mean, maybe it was long, but now I do have a follow-up just for fun. Do you remember any, I don't know, like, like a story that you told when you were making films with your friends when you were super young, maybe something that still sticks with you now? A story that when I was making films, I don't know. I had a similar question that might help. Um, did you ever look back on those movies you made with your friends and realize, oh, we were trying to do Freddy? <laughs> well, you know, we did do a lot of, you know, whenever there was like a history project or something, or we had to, you know, you know, do any report, I would always take the option of doing a video report and, you know, always some kind of, you know, reenaction or depiction of it. And they would always just end in these kind of bloody scenes or they'd always be, you know, it's like, how can I get makeup and blood into the war of 1812? So. That's a good topic for it. Yeah. My first a lot of blood. was uh, Dream Warriors. So I completely relate to your coming into horror. 
That was your first one? Yeah, that was the first real one. Like I had seen kitty horror movies maybe, but that was, my parents were super strict and that was at a sleepover and it snuck into my viewing. It's funny, that might've been mine also. I keep on, you know, cause that and also the fourth one blend in together. Um, and definitely there's the waterbed in the fourth one, which I have, you know, shamelessly pay homage to um, <laughs> in, uh, in the film. But, um, but yeah, no, it, and it's amazing. You know, it's funny because I think that, you know, uh, I think there's so many people who are hungry to see, uh, you know, a reboot or a remake or a continuation of that series. I think it's also so loaded. I think it's, you know, and, you know, some people I think who didn't grow up with it or don't appreciate the magic there, you know, it's almost stigmatized also, you know, it's like they don't understand what's so awesome about Freddy. Um, and I think, but, you know, I see the inspiration of it and like, Christopher Nolan films. You look at Inception and, you know, slipping into dreams and rooms that rotate on themselves. I mean, it was all done in, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street. I like this idea of uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but playing the game with Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, yeah exactly. So what would you say is the moment that all of it felt real. Cause it's one thing to say, you know, I want to grow up and I want to be a filmmaker. It's another to have that moment where the dream feels attainable. So is there any specific thing that kind of launched you to that next year? You know, it never, it's a combination of, I was always preposterously saying like, I'm a director from like, you know, I was 15. I'm like, I'm going to be a director. You know, I'm, I'm a director. Um, and so it, in one way, I was, you know, just brazenly uh, claiming it, you know, even when I wasn't getting paid for it or anything. At the same time, I still to this day don't feel like it's real. You know, it's like even on these days where you kind of go onto the lot and, you know, I get that thrill like um, I think everyone else does, where it just feels surreal going on there. And, you know, this is the place that, I mean, you're, I'm like working on the Warner Brothers lot. I have an office on the Warner Brothers lot and it just feels surreal. Um, so, so yeah. And also I think it's a gradual thing. I think that it's, you know, the, the, my quick biography is, you know, I, or at least immediate short-term biography is, you know, I did, you know, the Maiden, which is the short film and um, that got a little attention thankfully got the, the right attention from the right people. James saw it and he loved it. New Line saw it and they loved it. And they, they had been developing this, you know, this La Llorona movie. Um, so they brought, they brought me in on, on that. And I think it was, you know, I, I honestly owe a huge debt to, to David Sandberg. Not, he didn't hire me, but he, I think that he's, because he's so awesome and he did so well with Lights Out and New Line was kind of you know, doubling down on this idea that, hey, you know, guys who do shorts, you know, we can, we can shape them, we can, you know, get them to do movies. So I definitely benefited from that. You know, we did La Llorona and honestly, I just got along great with the New Line guys and we struck up a friendship. Um, and then, you know, also I really connected with James. I think that, you know, James is really, I mean, it's like, all, first of all, he's a total hero of mine. I'm totally coming at like Conjuring and, you know, the whole universe is, you know, a big fan. Um, but uh, I, I think that he's also just, he's just an awesome guy. He's very relatable and very down to earth. And I think that that kind of, you know, all those things just lined up. So, you know, when you know, he was looking to hand over the reins, he was like, he called me. So, um, but I think the thing that no one, you know, that I don't talk about is like, I was directing commercials before this and I was like slogging away. And, so, you know, a lot of times like 
some of the commercials were cool. Um, you know, I did a couple music videos. I did a Billie Eilish uh, video, but it's so good. Oh, thanks, thanks. It's so incredible. Um, but you know, a lot of them weren't cool, and they were just—I was just paying the bills, and it was just like really hard. And so, in in terms of like, when did it feel real? It's funny in terms of how it never feels real. It's like you're you're like I'm slogging away at like on like a McDonald's commercial. No, no harm to McDonald's. I love McDonald's, but like. Um, you're kind of like, I'm like, is this the dream? Am I, am I living the dream? I mean, technically I'm directing, but this doesn't quite satisfy like, you know, you're deep. I don't know. I think you're always kind of going for it. And it's interesting because, you know, when I talk to other guys, I think that that feeling of, you know, you're always kind of trying to get at whatever that ephemeral thing is, you know, you know, I don't know if it ever feels real. You, so there are a lot of horror shorts out there. It's a very popular category for shorts and obviously quality is a major factor, but I'm curious when the maiden really got out there and got this response. And when you started talking with James Wan, what were the elements of yours specifically that really resonated? What was the feedback you kept getting back? You know, I think that they, they like that. I just put the focus on scares. I think that, um, you know, I think they also liked the personality in it. I think that there is kind of a, you know, a dark comedy in it and it's not, it's not comedic, but I think that there is, you know, that the idea of a, a real estate agent who wants to sell a haunted house. I think that there was something about that that was, you know, I still love that idea. I think there's something fun and sticky about it. Um, and I think that they just, they, uh, you know, that kind of lined up with a lot of sensibilities within New Line. I think they, they just, you know, they like that. But, you know, I, I think without a doubt, I mean, I would, you know, I would be wrong if I didn't say it. I mean, just there is a huge degree of luck, you know, there is so because I see those so many of these, you know, awesome horror shorts out there. And I'm like, there are there's so much talent out there. And I'm sure there's so many guys out there who are like, I'm so goddamn talented. Why am I not directing? You know, why am I not? Why do I not have this movie? Um, and so I think that, that that there was a huge degree of that. Going back to the the commercial experience, so I know that might not be, you know, maybe the most creatively fulfilling type of content to make, but is there anything about making those commercials and being, you know, confined creatively in that sense that has bolstered those creative skills when you got the chance to actually use them in film? Yeah, I think, you know, you're, I think you're always learning and I think every experience, you know, you know, it does pay off in unexpected ways. The, um, you know, the, uh, you know, it's funny, like back to the McDonald's co commercial, I didn't do a lot of McDonald's, I've only done a handful, but like, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, that you, you, the great thing about commercials, the kind of the big he headline is that you're, you get a chance to work with a bunch of different people with a bunch of different, you know, each commercial has a different problem that you're trying to solve. And you also get to use a bunch of different tools. And, you know, it, as simple as um, the, uh, you know, there's this thing called the periscope lens and it's used, you know, a lot for food and it looks just like a periscope, but you can like, you know, get in very close focus and, you know, get these kind of, you know, impossible angles. And, you know, you know, where am I going to be shooting food in a movie? It didn't pay off there. But the other thing that, you know, uh, you know, I learned when I was using that shooting Big Macs is, you um, that it can go underwater. You can actually submerge it. And that ended up being in the uh, the bathtub scene where, you know, we were kind of debating about, do we just build a whole bathtub and then have like a piece of plexiglass to kind of get in close, you know, on our girl as she's drowning. 
And I was like, well, we could just use the periscope lens. And it was something that you can just kind of like get right in, in there. And it's, you know, one of those things that, because, you know, it's not always, you know, those solutions aren't always offered. And, you know, sometimes hopefully you're working with the right guys who, you know, suggest that, but, you know, sometimes it's just like your own experience. And I think it's those type of things where, you know, you get to work with, you know, a variety of different tools. And then I think also it's just being able to synthesize ideas and work with different people, you know, whether it's like you're working with a, you know, an advertising agency or a client and, you know, understanding that everybody has needs. And, you know, the big thing with when you're making a movie, especially a studio movie, is there's so many, you know, there's so many voices, there's so many ideas and very valid ideas that you can't just dismiss. You, you can't be, well, I guess you could, you know, there's lots of guys who do that and just, you know, they make their own movie. Um, but I think that, you know, sometimes it's to their detriment and sometimes they're missing what could be really good ideas or they're missing guidance that, you know, that it, I think that, you know, I've learned honestly so much from the, the guys at New Line, you know, that is a great, you know, without a, without a doubt, everyone always asks, it's like, what, are, what did James teach you? Like, what's the secrets James, James taught you? And, it, and of course, without a doubt, James has taught me so much. I, my, my you know, working relationship and friendship with him has been amazing and I'm a better person for it. What no one ever talks about is like, what did New Line teach you? It's like, it is that, that place is filled with, with creative executives who, you know, they grew up loving movies, loving New Line movies. Now, they're now working there. And they've got, they've worked on so many movies and they have so much experience. And honestly, like they, you know, there's so much great stuff there. So I don't know, back to like, you know, the commercial, you know, the learnings from commercials. I think that part of it is just, you know, being able to synthesize good ideas and navigate it. Cause you know, sometimes you'll get two conflicting awesome ideas, you know, and what road do you take? I also wanted to jump back to bury a friend for a minute. Cause I am a big fan of Billie Eilish. Who isn't? Uh, everyone I know loves that music video. I did not realize he directed that until very recently while researching for this podcast. But, and as much as like I've spent my life learning about and being passionate about filmmaking, I don't really know anything about making music videos. So I guess I'm curious, that felt like such a definitive moment in her career, a definitive video to that sort of phase of her aesthetic. What is it like combining your directorial vision with like an upcoming pop star's whole vibe? And you also have to satisfy the song and tell a story within your video. It made me realize I know nothing about this form. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, coming down to luck, I was extraordinarily lucky to, to work with her on that, that film. I think it's on the music video. I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore we've been doing a lot of press <laughs> um it I, super lucky she's amazing she's you know she came at that with you know basically a full deck of the visuals like she was like this is you know i want this almost like a abduction probing you know sequence and i want to you know basically i want to be levitating i want to spin and then she pulled up a reference of you know I, like how she's going to spin and you know some of it you know uh, you know, a lot of what I delivered was more kind of like little nuanced things. It's, you know, finding the right location and finding something that feels like the right vibe. I think that, you know, without a, without a doubt, she's, she's really talented and she's a genius. There's a reason she is as, as successful as she is at such a young age. And, you know, 
I have no doubt that with every, I mean, she's directing her own videos. And I think with every video, she comes at it with a very fully formed vision. I mean, the, the touches that I did were, you know, and, and sometimes that's all it takes is just these kind of the small little like details, like, you know, the, in that, that kind of white void where these hands are attack, you know, attacking her and, you know, working her and stabbing her with the syringes. That was something that, um, you know, with that, I just brought up the idea of this kind of interactive lighting, the idea that we would, um, you know, it would kind of come on and off in this kind of a very, you know, bold way. So you like within, within different freeze frames, it would almost look like we're jump cutting. And I just thought that that could look really cool where you could like play out a scene, but then you're, you're getting different, you know, looks of her. And it's funny because, you know, that was, uh, I just shamely repeated myself in uh, The Conjuring in the very end of the film, there is kind of a couple moments with a character where I literally, literally did that. And it was funny because my editor was looking at the footage and he said, it's a jump cut. It's a jump, it's the, there's a jump cut in the footage. Like he couldn't explain it. And really it was just this, you know, this kind of strobing, you know, uh, uh, sequence that we had with the light that, um, you know, that, that kind of gave that effect. Was there, so there's no movie magic behind that effect? Like something, something beyond the strobe to actually make that work? No, it was all the, you know, all that. I mean, honestly, that's one of the things that, you know, I've always been really fascinated. I know it sounds like so cheeseball, but like I'm fascinated by light and I love like moving light and interaction of light. And, um, you know, even, you know, I think back like one of the first times I was noticing it was like in the American version of the ring where, you know, there was the lighthouse. And I just thought that is such a cool effect. And just like, you know, it was something that I wanted to play with a lot in this movie is, you know, not just, you know, using light in a targeted way and kind of using it to kind of, you know, accent moments and, you know, not just, it doesn't need to be like the jump scare. It doesn't need to like reveal the the demon or something, but it can actually like, you can kind of bring it in. Like a, there's the scene in the motel where Lorraine is, is, you know, remembering something that happened earlier in the movie. And, you know, there was a lot of, it might've even been written where it was a flashback to, to what happened. There was, so we were tying it in. And I just thought, you know, we, we had seen it basically an hour ago. There's no reason to actually do a flashback to it, but you could, we could almost evoke that feeling of, of a memory by just having like light passing by like cars, like in the, the parking lot. And there was something about that. I was like, I like the way it came out. I thought it looked cool. I don't know if anyone's like distracted. Like, why is there so many lights going on through the hotel room? I feel like I'm jumping way ahead, but now that you've brought up lighting, I just have to ask what it was like constructing that one shot out in the woods the one that's featured in the trailer where the light changes drastically all around Lorraine. How, how exactly do you accomplish that? Is that all done in camera? Yeah, that's all in camera. It um, basically was on a, we put a big light, we shot it at night. So, you know, the, the shot is we're looking down at Lorraine in the woods and it looks like we're in the day and she, she goes in, she kneels down, goes into her vision. And as the camera drops down, the light dramatically changes and looks like the sunset. It's almost like a time-lapse effect. And um, the way we did it is we just shot it at night and we lit it for the day. So we had a big light. It was on a techno crane and that techno crane was on this really, really long piece of track. And so we just retracted the crane, retracted the light. We we're moving the light through the forest and then like moving it along the crane. And, um, and it was great. Yeah, there was no visual effects in it so much so that if you look very closely, and I think even in the trailer, um, you can see we have like uh, her mark is under her foot. It just peeks out just a little bit. 
but it was like, it was one of those things that we saw really late in the game. And it was, there was debate about, you know, do we just get visual effects to clean it up? It's very easy. It's done all the time. But I was like, no, I want to be able to say that there was literally no visual effects in that shot. And so I left it in as proof. I very much respect that choice. Committed. Don't tell anyone. This podcast isn't going out to anyone, is it? You know, the first thing I'm going to do when we hang up is I'm going to go look in the trailer and look for the mark. Yeah. I feel like I wanted to ask a couple other questions and now I can't remember them. Like before getting it. Oh, I just wanted to ask you, did you get any free McDonald's? That feels like an important one to ask. You know what you actually get if you're working on a McDonald's commercial and you're working at the McDonald's shop is like the, you know, they have these stores that will this, you know, one store in Chicago and then one store in LA that is just dedicated to shooting. Basically you get, I think it's like three o'clock fries where they go and usually like the oil has been kind of worked over like for a day. This is like the freshest oil. It's the cleanest oil you'll ever get. And they bring, they cook these fries and it is literally the best fries you'll ever have. Cause of course McDonald's fries are amazing, but it's like, imagine like the very best version of it at three o'clock, like right at the end of it. It's like, literally you want that on every shoot day. That sounds incredible. <laughs> Habit to get into. That also gave me the chance to think about my more serious follow-up question from before, because, you know, we're always reporting on this end of, you know, there are so many cooks in the kitchen and like the executives are making the directors do this. You have such a good relationship, it seems, with the folks at New Line. So what would you say is one of the most important things to have between a director and executive relationship in order to have a successful collaboration? It's a good question. I mean, I think you got to have the right executive. I mean, I think that's like what it comes down to. I think that, you know, the guys at New Line make it very easy. You know, they're very easy to talk to. They're very collaborative and, you know, they, they support your ideas. You know, they, you know, they don't try and jam in, you know, they'll, they'll pitch their ideas, but they're also very just democratic. They, you know, and sometimes like when it comes into editorial, um, you know, they might have notes and, you know, it's, we'll try those notes in the edit and then we'll, we'll test it in with an audience. And yeah, I've seen it go both ways. Sometimes it's a note where I'm like, I don't know if that's going to work and it works. And without a doubt, you're going to use that. And they, they don't, they they never say like, told you so it's, it's always just like this kind of like, let's test it. Let's see if this idea works. And, you know, I think that those environments I mean, that's the way it should be. It should be best idea wins. It should be, you know, you, there should be a safe place so you could, you know, develop and work on things. I mean, there's this, you know, everybody loves Pixar. There's this great um, book on Pixar. Uh, I think Ed Catmull wrote it called Creativity, Creativity Incorporated. Do you guys read that? I should read that. I'm obsessed with Pixar. Read it. Read it. It is the absolute best, you know, for you know, Pixar fans, filmmaking fans, fans of creative management, as crazy as that sounds like, and it's, it's got the most in, uh, I mean, first of all, some of it's just awesome because it's behind the scenes on Pixar, but part of it just talks about their process and just how, you know, you know, what, what does it look like and how they, you know, they have this, this great saying called uh, fail and fail fast, where it's just like, you, they just make the movie as quickly as possible. They get the movie on its feet as quickly as possible and they see what works and what doesn't. And they, they admit in the book, and I've heard this in other, other interviews that their first movie, their first cut of their movies are always God awful. They're always terrible. But 
but they can build off of that. And I think that, you know, the idea of an iterative, iterative process in making a film, it's, I think it's a new idea that's kind of come across like thanks to Pixar and thanks to animation over the course of, you know, these past years. But I think that, you know, Marvel has that. I think that the idea of, you know, we're, we're going to shoot it, we're going to test it, we're going to feel it out and we're going to course correct. I think that that's, I think that's a really interesting way of making a movie. I think it's an interesting thing too, because uh, similar to what Perry was saying about executive, like the idea of executive overreach, I think a lot of people have a negative connotation about test screenings, but a lot of the filmmakers we talk to have a really positive relationship to them and find them very helpful. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, honestly, I would absolutely second that, triple that. I, you know, I think, you know, and I think the guys at New Line said, you know, that they haven't worked with anyone who likes testing as much as I do. And it's such an awesome experience. You basically get to bring in an audience, you get to put on a show, you get to show them your movie at whatever stage it is. And sometimes it's just not good. But I mean, the truth is my movies are always good, even in the roughest state. <laughs> But you get to just put it on its feet and then you get to see what's working. And it is, it is so clarifying for a filmmaker, I think for a creative person, because I mean, it's, it's easy in anything that's creative to get sidelined on something that's irrelevant. You know, there's sometimes I'll look at a shot and I'll be like, this composition is terrible. I screwed up this shot. The scene doesn't work. The composition doesn't work. And then you start like cutting around that shot and it's, it's like, it's not about that. I mean, it's, it's about the story. It's about these bigger things. And sometimes you kind of, you just need, and you need to feel it with, with an audience to, to, to realize those things. I mean, and ultimately, you know, I mean, it's the same thing with, with theater. I mean, theater, you know, it, you know, they, they test theater. I mean, it goes on the road. I mean, they're, they're, you know, there's so many different, uh, I think that the idea that a movie always is, you know, comes out fully realized. And I think, you know, some people can do it. I think a guy like Fincher and a guy like Nolan can, you know, deliver, you know, a movie fully conceived and they don't need to test it. Um, but I think that there is, uh, you know, you go back to like Charles Dickens would like change his story. He would like basically release a lot of his stories episodically in these like little, you know, little chapters. And he would respond to, to audience responses. I mean, basically as people were reading it and com commenting on it, they, you know, he would make adjustments, which, you know, that sounds, you know, almost so far ahead of the times. I mean, now you see TV storylines kind of, you know, being adjusted based on fan response. But I think that there is something about that where, you know, we're making this for people, for like a theatrical experience, for a shared experience, for people to enjoy it. And you, if that's the goal, course you want to hear what people are thinking as soon as possible. I don't know if we should save this for spoilers, but for The Conjuring 3 in particular, what was the biggest takeaway from those test screenings? The biggest takeaway is that it was the scariest, most awesome movie that's ever been made. Ah, I think had that from... <laughs> um, <laughs> no notes, actually. not None. Yeah, no notes from the very first one. And that was a rough cut. And we just screened it again and again, and we kept on getting that same response. No, in all seriousness, because I have to shamelessly plug the movie, people love it. It has gotten a great response, and it has from the very beginning. I think a lot of that, honestly, is due 
to the world that James set up and the characters of the Warrens. I think, you know, especially after this crazy year that we've had, everybody just wants to come back and, you know, have some comfort food. I mean, you know, and, and you know, coming back to the Warrens and that experience, you know, you know, the, I think our relation, the, the relationship the Warrens have with each other and then our relationship to them, I think that there is something that, um, you know, is kind of nourishing about that. In terms of the testing, the uh, the biggest thing that we changed was there was a demon that was not working. Um, and it was very similar to the situation in um, Conjuring 2. You know, there was, I don't know how much you guys know about it, but there was um, Valak, the nun was not the nun. The nun was a creation in additional photography. Um, you guys know the story. I don't know. I think a clown. Tell me what more. I said, I don't, and I feel like a clown. Tell me more. It's funny. It, it is out there. And I think even James released some concept art of what the, I've actually never seen what the true was photographed demon looks like in the original one. Um, but it was something that I think, you know, and, and, you know, to his credit, New Line's credit, the movie tested great. It was, you know, everyone loved it. And it was just something that James just felt like he could do, like there was something else there. And, you know, he started thinking about this evil nun and he, uh, that's, that was the birth of the nun. And it was all through additional photography. Um, and with this, we had, you know, this is a very different Conjuring movie. It's, you know, we're taking a big swing. And that was the, the idea with it is that it would be a departure. It would be, it's not going to be the typical haunted house movie that that has been done and really incredibly well explored by the, you know, the previous two movies, but also all the spinoffs, you know, that's the, you know, definitely been, been their format. So, you know, we, James and the studio wanted to get back to the roots of paranormal investigators, you know, it's like, and that was something that always appealed to me, you know, when I, you know, when I first saw the, first saw the Conjuring. And so this is more detective story and it was more a story that was going to be complicated and needed you know some some mystery and needed to go on the road and needed some kind of clarity in the resolution um i think that if you look at the other movies sometimes the connections between the demons and why the, how the demons exist um you know there is it's loose but you buy it because it's within the confines of a haunted house you buy it you know you know why does the crooked man exist with the nun exist with the old man what are these different, they're different forms of one, you know, and it kind of is singular and it, you know, it takes the shape of, you know, this one haunted house experience. I think once you start going out into the world and you have, you're creating more of a mystery, it, those old rules of we can have a variety of different demons and creatures starts to, uh, starts to get tested. And when we were testing it, I think that that's really what we found out is that you want the movie to kind of come to a resolution and come to a focus and, you know, come with an easy explanation that makes sense. And, you know, we, the, the demon that we had was, was awesome and interesting and true to life, true to the accounts, both of David Glatzel and, and Arnie, they both described this, this creature that was haunting them. Um, but it just didn't fit in the movie. It was just too, too complicated. Just because I'm curious now, like if we want to picture something, would it would it look anything along the lines of the face that appears in the waterbed? Yes. Okay. Yes. But there's more to it. Yeah. yeah. It's basically the most terrifying thing you've ever seen. 
Oh, okay. We had to cut it. We had to picture it now. It was too scary. (laughs) (laughs) It's too scary. It was too scary. I mean, that's a course. That's a lot of the criticism when people see it is, is this movie too scary? Should it even be released in theaters? Is it responsible? You know, I don't know. (laughs) They're my favorite kinds of conversations. (laughs) As you mentioned, this is though like a very different type of conjuring film. And you mentioned you guys ultimately cut out what people might expect in the demon front. They are out in the world. That's not the traditional haunted house. So I'm curious, like outside of obviously the love story between the Warrens, was there anything that you found did have to, you had to retain? Have to retain from this true story or what was the... From the the sort of hallmarks of the franchise so far. Yeah, you know, honestly, that was something that was was tricky to navigate because, you know, once you get... If you look at a lot of the the scares and conjuring movies, you know, there's, you have kind of shadowy, creaky doors. You have toys that come, you know, spring to life or, you know, are behaving strangely there. You have a lot of these kind of family home devices. And, um, you know, as we were developing it, you know, without a doubt, I was shamelessly trying to get random uh, speak and spell toys out in the forest. (laughs) No, I wasn't doing that, but like, you know, you try and think like, well, what is, you know, we're in the forest, the warrants have never been in the forest, you know, what is the, you know, what is the experience that's going to be in there? And I think that, you know, with that, some of it just, you know, the movie needed to take its own leap forward and become its own thing. I think that, you know, as she connects to the, you know, the events that happened in the forest that, you know, it's a murder sequence, um, I think that, you know, that was, you know, even though we've seen things like it in the first, in the second Conjuring, it, you know, it, it became its own thing, you know, and alternating between these kind of two realities. I think that there was, you know, something really fun about that. And, you know, I think that the, the movie said, defined the, what it wanted to be. You know, I think that part of it was just, you know, trying to, I mean, as I've said before, you know, I'm coming at this as a fan, you know, and I think that, you know, I want to make, I want to keep that, because a lot of people say, you know, like, what was your spin? Like, how did you want to take this in a bold new direction? I was like, I actually would have been happy doing a classic haunted house movie. Um, I think that the, you know, this, the, the idea of kind of making it more into an investigation came from James himself. And ultimately, I'm so grateful for that. I think that pushing it in a new direction and putting it in, putting the Warrens into places and situations we haven't seen before, it, it becomes, it gets to be its own thing. And it gets to, to show that a Conjuring movie can be many things. I, you know, as you guys know, I'm totally a fan of Clyder and totally a fan of you guys. And it's funny because Perry, I remember you talking about when you first saw this first Conjuring and it was when you were, you said it was, uh, it was called the Warren Files, and the idea that it would be spun off into you—you you would have case files that would take different shapes. And you know, I, I heard that because that's exactly what I thought when I first saw it. And it reminded me of like the X Files. And in a way, I saw these guys. It's like, okay, the Warrens are like this, like folksy Christian files like Mulder and Scully you know and I I kind of was waiting for that movie I was waiting for the promise of that to be delivered and I think because the first film is 
it's so awesome. And, you know, that haunted house experience, it's like you want that itch over and over again. I think that that's why we've seen so many of these haunted house movies. But I think that that's not the be all end all of what a Conjuring movie can be. And I think that that's where, that's what I'm most, that's what I was most excited about ultimately about this movie and also where the franchise is headed. You know, it's, it's not going to be, it is going to, it's going to kick the tires on your expectations. I cannot wait to see more. I'm like, as you were explaining that, I was, I was trying to convince myself, well, like, no, some of the other installments have broken out of the haunted house mold, but, but no, I'm now that I'm thinking about it, you could call the nun a haunted house movie. All the Annabelle movies are set in a house, which is very much, you know, actively haunted in a traditional sense, but with a creative spin, depending on who the director is. So I'm kind of like first clicking into place that this is the first time I've seen a Conjuring movie get out into the real world in that sense. It's like the Matrix, basically, right? A little bit. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Um, (laughs) I did want to ask about working with Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson. I imagine they are lovely people, but they are acting veterans who have now played these characters. And I guess this is the fourth film. So when I try to imagine myself in your shoes, I can't even begin to imagine myself giving them direction on these roles that they know and play so well. So how does that factor into your work with them as an actor's director? They're awesome. I mean, without a doubt, I mean, think, you know, the, the image that you see that they project is absolutely true to form. I mean, they are, they're just awesome, two awesome people. They're really, they're great at their craft. They're great actors. Um, they also have just this incredible friendship together. You know, they, I think that it translates to just a great chemistry on screen. You know, people talk about, you know, essentially the love story of the Conjuring movies, that, that that thread of a love story and that powerful love story is, you know, really one of those things that just keeps, keeps us coming back. Um, and it's because I think that they have so much, you know, honest, just like friendship and respect for each other. Their, their families are really good friends. They hang out together. They, you know, uh, I think it's, you know, it's really real and, and rooted in a genuine place. Um, you know, without a doubt, I was coming in, I mean, with the whole thing. I mean, I was like, I was like, I just want to make the best Conjuring movie possible. And like, how, what are, how are they going to be? You know, what's, what's it going to be like? I mean, cause they're powerhouse actors. They're really established and awesome. And they were great. I mean, the bottom line is, you know, they were so collaborative and receptive and, you know, they, you know, in the very, I think that where my fears were first totally realized was in the very beginning. And with, it was just in understanding how they work so differently. And with Vera, she's, you know, very intuitive. She's very, she comes to set, she knows what she wants to do, or she's just emotionally ready to go. She's, you know, she doesn't even, you know, if it was up to her, she doesn't even want to rehearse. She's really just rehearsing for the benefit of the other actors. Um, but she's she's ready to go. And it's almost like she is Lorraine Warren. She's like, in this kind of emotional, intuitive way, she's like, I'm there, I've, I've tapped in, I'm like ready to go. And so, you know, I have Vera on one side. And then with, you know, with Patrick, I'm like laying out the scene and, you know, Vera's like chomping at the bit, she's ready to go. And then Patrick, I get done explaining, you know, basically how it's all gonna go and what I'm thinking. Patrick is like, okay, so we're, we're starting over here and you want, okay. And you want me to go over here? And he's like asking these questions and I'm like, 
oh my God, why is Patrick Wilson asking so many questions? Did I do something wrong? Is this wrong? And he kind of keeps on going. He's like, so I start here and I walk over here and this is where you want me to say that line. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> he kind of goes through it and he's kind of like thinking, he's like, but wait, wait a second, would Ed, would, would, okay, let me, but he like goes through it. And what I realized like after kind of like going through the process for the first couple of days is like, he's just talking it out. He's just like, and in a way he's like kicking the tires on the scene. Like he, he really wants to verbalize it and experience it. And, you know, almost like a pilot kind of goes through the checklist of like, I got this, I got this, I got, and I'm ready to take off. Like he kind of wants to kind of go through everything. And it's funny because then Vera's waiting there patiently. Like, obviously this is not her first time working with Patrick and he's just kind of like really talking it out. And where at first I was like, oh my God, this is exactly what I was worried about. He's not going to listen to my direction. He's like, it's not going to, you know, it's like, I'm going to be totally wrong. But then it was like, oh no, this is awesome. Like, first of all, I'm working a Conjuring movie. I'm working with Patrick and, and Vera. But like, you know, it's like, it's his process. And that actually was so informative to me. I mean, of course, every, every creative person comes at things differently. Everyone works differently. But it was actually like, I learned a lot from that just in terms of, it's good to kind of almost just like verbalize what you're doing. You know, sometimes you kind of get into a situation and I think he's probably, he probably has developed that after not asking those questions, after going into scenes and like finding himself in a situation where he was like, wait a second, hold on. Now I'm on the other side of the room and I'm supposed to get to, to there. What, what is, you know, and I think that like, that was really informative. And honestly, like I learned, you know, just in terms of, I mean, how awesome that was, but they, they're always down to go with it. They're, you know, and they're just like I was saying with the new, with, you know, the guys at New Line, you know, they want to take your ideas and make it awesome. They want to get the best version of it. You know, they're not there to, to challenge it. I mean, they're the best like team players possible. Um, so, yeah. I like hearing that about them. Doesn't surprise me. Haley, should we should we put the the spoiler warning on? I feel like time. But we we might need this time for that. All right, this is it, guys. If you have not seen The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, know that it's in theaters and available on HBO Max on June fourth. Go check it out, and then you'll be able to watch the rest of this video. Press pause, go watch it, and then when you reopen this window, it begins right here. It's that easy. All right, spoiler warning. Goodbye to everybody who hasn't seen the film. Oh my, where to start? Do you have do you have any burning questions, Haley? Before I jump in, about my burning questions. You haven't even asked me. <laughs> do you want to throw in a burning question? You no. can. Um, I do. I have a like a broad when. Okay, so this is a big franchise that has much room to go, and with something like psychic powers, there's so many freedoms in the way that you could take that. And so I'm curious how you decide how far Lorraine's psychic powers go if there's any concern about interfering with the future of the franchise if there are guidelines how how powerful is she and how do you decide you know it's honestly a conversation with everybody you know it's i think that um you know james and new line are the stewards of this franchise and you know they're going to be um you know uh, you know, navigating this through spinoffs and, you know, other, other movies. I think that, you know, with that, it's a, it's a great question. And with psychic powers, you could probably solve any mystery very quickly. Um, so, you know, there needs to be some kind of limits, uh, you know, put on her. 
it was, um, you know, there was just, there was a, a lot of different um, moments. I think one of the things that actually comes to mind that, you know, became kind of a deal breaker is, um, is with, this is a spoiler guys, don't, you see, go see the movie. Why are you watching spoilers if you haven't seen the movie? I guess is my big question. Because um, it just ruins it. There's, there's, you learn nothing from the spoilers. <laughs> um, when with Kastner, um, you know, there was, I, I, we were playing with an idea, you know, all, you know, from the very first draft, there was the idea that um, she, he doesn't, you know, just as a joke, he doesn't shake hands because of the chicken shit, he has chicken shit on his hands. It was a little character moment. There wasn't anything to it. But then I just thought it would be really cool if we paid it off in the end where Lorraine is there, you know, she kind of goes back to Kastner's and she's, she's talking with him and she touches his hand and maybe it's by, maybe she has a gut feeling or something, but by touching her hand, his hand, it's a flash of the past. And she, you know, connects to, you know, his child and, you know, his story and we, we see it play out there. And um, I think that that was, you know, one of those very specific moments. And I just thought, oh my God, it would be great. Cause on a second viewing, you go back and it's like, it wasn't chicken shit. He was aware she was a psychic and dodging the hand grabbing. Um, but, you know, that was one of those moments where, you know, I think, I think it was uh, DLJ, David Leslie Johnson, our writer, you know, brought up the point. He was like, once you add hand touching to a psychic ability, I mean, that goes in the, that goes in the, the arsenal, you know, you can't really walk that back. You, she'll just touch any hand of any suspect and then it's over. Um, so, so yeah, that was one of those moments where we kind of, we pulled back. What was it like approaching a conjuring film where the big bad isn't necessarily your quintessential demon? Like it's all, it's more human wielding that kind of power. Cause that's, that is another way, like we were discussing before with this movie getting out and about that this deviates big time from the other film. So was there any concern that, I don't know, that reveal would be a letdown or not as cool as having the big exorcism scene, which is what you have at the beginning of the movie. And it's still well done there. Um, yeah, I guess, well, if you want a big exorcism at the end of this movie, you got to just watch it in reverse. You got to like pull <laughs> a tenant and just like put it on rewind. Um, I think that it, uh, you know, hey, if a franchise is going to evolve, you got to start kicking the tires on these things. And it was something that I thought was the coolest thing possible. Um, you know, and, you know, I was talking to you guys about, you know, testing and the demon that we lost, you know, in a way I thought, okay, this is going to be the next iconic demon. And, you know, it was awesome. Like the thrill of like, you know, making that and making that demon with James and being like, Oh my God, this is the next nun. I cannot wait. And then the movie just, it couldn't fit it. It didn't really, it didn't really make sense for the movie. And honestly, I think everybody deserves like a pat on the back for, for letting it go because I think it just shows that, you know, everybody is, is, wants it to evolve and we don't want to just keep on repeating the same things, it, you know, and ultimately I think it makes for a more interesting story and a more human story, you know, and even the, one of the things that, you know, we uh, went back and um, was part of uh, additional photography was the, um, we expanded the relationship with, with Kastner. There was always a thread of it but part of it was 
was we love John Noble and John Noble was just tearing up the screen. And it was like, oh my God, we just need to do like the John Noble spinoff or we could like just watch like 20 more minutes of him just reading, you know, out of the Bible. Um, so we wanted more of him, but, you know, we started just expanding, you know, his story and telling, you know, that relationship. And ultimately what, it, what I really like about that and is it starts to look at the Conjuring movies from a different perspective. You know, this, the movie is about, you know, you have all these mirrors, you have, you know, Arnie and Debbie mirror, um, mirror the Warrens, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, mirror image of them as a couple. You have, um, you have our occultist, you know, she married, she mirrors uh, Lorraine, you know, she's like the bizarro evil version of her. And then also with Kastner in Kastner's artifact room or Kastner's library, it's a mirror of the Warrens themselves. And I think that th that idea I, I thought was awesome. And it, it starts to let us look at the Warrens in a different perspective. And I think it's the type of thing that you can, you know, you know, up to this point, you know, the Warrens are awesome and the Warrens always win. And, you know, everything always works out great. And there's no victims in a Conjuring movie. And then we have this story where there's a real murder here and there's a real victim. And what did the true Warrens do? They stuck to their beliefs and they came to the defense of the most unlikely person, not of the victim. They came to the defense of the murderer. And, you know, there's, you know, the, there's a lot of things that, you know, a lot of people love the Warrens. I love the Warrens. I love their story. But there's, there's some things that the Warrens did that I think we can question and we can, you know, wonder about, you know, I, I, you know, they were controversial characters and this was their most controversial case. And they believed in what they believed and they, they went to court to prove it and they, they stood behind Arnie. And I think that that is, you know, that's, that's a controversial idea. I think it's also a testament to their own faith in what they're doing. But I think that there was something very cool about the idea of it that, you know, we could explore the, the dark side of it. We could explore this kind of, you know, Conjuring movie where things don't work out all right and things do go horribly wrong. And in a way with Kastner, we, we could talk about like the darker side of the Warrens and the darker side of what they do. And, you know, these movies are always about kids getting into the artifact room. It's like kids opening that dark, like playing with that evil toy, playing with the, like the haunted thing, unlocking evil. And then thank God the Warrens come in and they save the day. You know, they, they take the evil toy away. They put it in the artifact room. Every, no victims. Everyone's, everyone's fine. This is one of the, the moments where, you know, they, they fail. And I think what was so cool with Kastner is that's a, we could tell Kastner's story and his obsession and his artifact room and his own child who got into the artifact room and never came out. So, yeah, I mean, I, so rewind. Let me actually try and tie that back into your story, into your question, um, which was, I don't even remember at this point. I've gone so far down the rabbit hole. I, I think you were talking like I, about like the obligation or the no, not having the, the demon. Like the expectation so, of the, expectation the, of the demon. demon reveal at the end. You know, ultimately, you know, so many people ask me, what's the cool iconic monster in this? What is it? You know, what, you know, and in a way it's like, I think we also just had to kick the tires. It's like, are we just making, you know, uh, uh, you know, 
Conjuring toys or like branded spinoffs? Or are we trying to tell human stories that really explore these, you know, who these characters are? And I think, and I'm not saying that we come came out the movie in the very beginning with like with that kind of absolute clarity, because we were trying to come up with our new awesome demon. Um, but I do think that there was something really powerful about the idea of trying to tell the most human Warren story and tell it both with the the Warrens and then also with you know, with the, their other characters. You could still tell a human story and a story that warrants things like uh, like conjuring Funko Pops. <laughs> like I would still buy them, whether there's a demon in this one or not. Are you saying there's not going to be a uh, Kastner Funko Pop? I mean, he is so the iconic Funko Pop. If they made it and he wasn't included, I would need the whole set. <laughs> I think people would would buy an Ed Warren with a cane Funko. Yeah, right. I second that. <laughs> All right. Do you do you have anything else? We only have a couple minutes, Haley. So, do we want to do our last two or another spoiler? I I was gonna pose that to you. I'm happy to move on to the last. All two. right. All right. Let's move on, and I'll give you the honor, Haley. We always ask our guests the same last two questions. Haley, do you want to pick one first? You know what I'm gonna pick. I yeah, probably. <laughs> Do you have any pets? <laughs> any pets? Yes. Tell us about your pets if you have them. Uh, you know, I had a cat that passed away oh. during La Llorona. So yeah. I'm sorry. But she's that. with me in spirit. I have two little kids who are kind of like animals. <laughs> I demand. <laughs> I feel like as uh, as animal lovers, we often we often forget that like some people have have human pets, children. <laughs> it's like it's like every time my sister uh, talks about my niece, I'm always like, yeah, well, Dewey, my cat did this yesterday. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well, they can go to the bathroom in the toilet eventually, so <laughs> there's that. A plus. But I've seen cats that can do the same, so I don't know. I'd be very impressed if Dewey ever did that. It's not happening. Our other last question is always, what is some piece of genre storytelling that you've experienced recently that you would recommend to our viewers? It could be something new, something old, a movie, a show, a comic, you name it. Possessor. I thought that was awesome. Very, very good choice. We're big Possessor fans here. Yeah. Great. Go and see it, guys. After you've seen... The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It in theaters, and then also uh, started a subscription for HBO Max. Then go see Possessor. Possessor. <laughs> I, but if I'm you're off of your gift for self-promotion and say, after you do all those things, then go listen to our Witching Hour interview with Brandon Cronenberg. Ah, I got to hear that. It was a good conversation. But also, if anyone's still here that hasn't seen the movie, what's what's wrong with you? But I'll just take this opportunity to plug it again and let you know that it's available in theaters and on HBO Max. And if you have anyone in your life who has not seen it, tell them to go see it and just continue spreading the love. Michael, thank you so much for joining us for the witching hour. We appreciate your time and all of your stories. I love hearing about this. Congratulations and thank you again. I was about to not do our outro, I was like about to do like a very traditional wrap it up and move on. This is it. It's over. You have officially survived the witching hour.